So after a podcast on a lecture, an essentials lecture on what is the gospel, it occurred to, to me that we need to have a little lecture on how do I share the gospel? Don't want to assume that you know how, you may. Maybe this will, even if you do, which if you're listening to this, you probably have shared the gospel and know to a certain extent, but can always improve, always sort of add to our toolbox as it, as it is and as it were. And we don't, uh, we want to, we want to help. You don't want to assume that you know how or, or ever assume that we're, we're good enough. We want to be, be improving our game as it were, um, on getting good at sharing the gospel and, and, and thinking about different ways to do that. It's one of the most important things in the world. And yet I spend far too little time, uh, focused on it and doing it surely. Um, and so, we as a church, too, at Sojourn Galleria, are obsessively and increasingly focused and want to be focused on reaching the lost and making disciples and taking our Lord's commission and commandment seriously and not thinking of it as a great suggestion. And so we want to help with that here. Um, starting here, this would, all these you know, 10 or so hour or, or less lectures, um, podcasts in Christian basics or Christian essentials can be added to, but we want to at least have, you know, 10 or so short lectures saying these, man, these are just essentials. We want to know something about each of these things. So as, as Christians, and we can add to those and we certainly will. This is not exhaustive. It's just a start. Okay. So some ideas. Um, first of all, let's start simply. What is, okay. How does not, what is the gospel? How to share the gospel, man, don't forget the three words of Packer. Few people condense things elegantly like J.I. Packer. And, you know, he says, look, what is the gospel? God saves sinners in three words. So don't forget that when you're sharing the gospel and you can get nervous and you can tend to forget everything you know and everything you know about what is the gospel and how to share it. And it's quite simple in a sense and let's not make it more complex than it needs to be. You know, sometimes people just, they're ready. God has gotten them ready through circumstances or whatever. And you soften their heart and they come to you and they just, and maybe it's in relationship or maybe you just met them and they say, like the Philippian jailer to Paul in Acts 16, what must I do to be saved? Now, there was a history there. Paul had spent the night behaving in such a way in the jail that that jailer was ready. But nonetheless, he came to Paul with his question, and Paul didn't sit him down. And I, and I get this from, from a mentor, Oz Guinness. He didn't sit him down and give him a disquisition on the Roman road, you know, or, or Romans itself, or um, take him through the Acts 17 Mars Hill speech. He, or, or, you know, F, in, in Ephesus, what did he spend two years teaching? Surely he took these Christians through every way, so many ways in which Christ fulfills the Old Testament, etc. He probably expounded most of the scriptures to them over those two years, and many were converted through it. But he gave this man what he needed, and that was that believe on Jesus, and you and your household will be saved. And that's exactly what that man did. He was ready. So sometimes we need to just boil it down and say, look, the gospel is more than this, but it's not less than this, that God saves sinners. And that's the hot core of the gospel, right? Is that that God in Christ has come after 
poor, wretched sinners to save them, and he has done everything necessary for their salvation. He's a doctor. He came for the sick to heal us completely. He's a shepherd. He came for the lost sheep to bring us back. Um, and so that's the good news is that we are sinners and that God has made a way to save us completely. Now, that leads to other things, doesn't it? And that's part of the beauty of it, that God saves sinners implies that we are sinners and that we and that God can't look on sin and that we um, that's a problem and that we have been given a solution in Christ that we need a savior and that something's gone terribly wrong because we're born into sin and so on and so forth. So that, that can, that, those three words can lead to other things. But don't ever forget that God saves sinners. That's the beauty and the hot core of the gospel, that redemption piece. He's paid the ultimate price to buy us off the slave auction block and to make us sons and daughters. And, um, and he's done that at the price of his own life and his own eternal soul sacrificed for us on the cross. So, um, and also, you know, rolled into that is the fact that as we share the gospel, we, we can sometimes um, tell people that it's not just the death of Christ that saves us. He died in our place, his, his death so that we could live. Uh, that pays the price for all of our iniquity and sin and transgression and lawbreaking and rebellion. Um, but also, and his blood makes us clean, but also that his, um, so he takes away the negative, but also he gives us a positive, right? His righteousness is ours. His life, his, his life of law keeping, his, his obedience um, of, to the Father from the heart gladly, that is ours also by faith. So his life counts for us and not just his death. That's, that's the gospel too. But God saves sinners, those three words. Don't forget that. That's what I want to start with that, how to share the gospel. Also, um, how to share the gospel. Let's think about one place you're going to go in scripture. Where is that going to be? You might think John three sixteen. I think that's a great place to go. But it can be a bit gauzy because people know it or they think they do. They put it on ESPN posters and stuff like that. Although I will mention that, that verse next and spend a few seconds on it. But let's go 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, okay? And that's maybe the best place where the gospel is sort of concisely but, but fully um, articulated. And I shouldn't say fully, but it's various compo- the various components of what Christ has done for us are sort of um, listed out in a few verses. So 1 Corinthians 15, at the end of that book, Paul says, now I'd remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. So he is, he is um, aware of the fact that he is outlining here the gospel, which you received and which you stand, verse two, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And even the way he talks about how the gospel saves us there is, is beautiful, and there's a lot there we can unpack. We're not going to. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. It's not something Paul made up. He received it. That Christ died for our sins. Why did he die for our sins? According, in accordance with the scriptures. It wasn't something that came out of nowhere. Christ came and fulfilled the scriptures. They had, the prophets had been speaking about this. The law had been speaking about this. God had been preparing his people through his word and in space-time history for, for centuries for the Christ. And Christ came and fulfilled that word. What? Verse 4. In accordance with the scriptures that he died for our sins. Verse 4. That he was buried. So he died. He paid the penalty for our sin. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he didn't stay dead. His life is proof that God accepted um, payment for our sins as satisfactory. And he's alive now. He's reigning. 
this this isn't this is me this is commentary he's reigning and he is in our hearts by faith through his holy spirit connecting us to himself to the father we are seated with him ephesians 2 in the heavenlies and he is coming again and we will see him face to face and he will he will finish what he started and he will make all things new so uh, and, and Paul goes on in verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 at one time. So, so that 1 Corinthians 15, what I'm saying is 1 Corinthians 15, the first few verses, is a great place to go. So God saves sinners, first of all, and then also 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, two, two great places to go. John three sixteen, um, for God so loved the world. How much does God love us? How much does he love all Every, every person in the world, all different types um, of all different, you know, ethnicities and socioeconomic classes and nation. How much does he love the world? I'm telling you, I'm going to tell you how much. Let me tell you exactly how much that he gave his only son or his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him, why did he give him? That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now listen to this. A lot of times, I, guess I said gauzy because we're over-familiar with it, but there's some serious stuff in this verse that we don't focus on. We focus on, for God to love the world. That's wonderful, but but what's the, what's the drama in that verse? He gave his son to save us from what? He came to rescue us and to step in, in our place and to perish in our place so that we wouldn't perish. That word perish is in there. That, that's a severe verb. It means to be eternally unraveled like a ball of yarn just pulled, pulled, pulled forever. Like, a, like an onion that's just peeled, peeled, peeled to nothingness. I mean, being made, being, becoming a wraith and being undone forever and just taken apart piece by piece, body and soul, that's what hell is and so much more than that. The Son of God was somehow eternally unraveled for us so that we could be put back together and made whole. I mean, that's packed into that verse. Okay, so that whoever believes on him should not perish. How, 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 how do we not perish? Because he did in our place, but have everlasting life. Why? How? Because he experienced everlasting death. I mean, if you, and if you shoot forward to the last verse in John 3, John three thirty six, it, it talks about that, right? The wrath of God remains on the one who does not trust in Christ. That's there. So, so there's a, it's an intense verse, actually, and it's a great verse to go to, but you kind of have to unpack it, walk somebody through it and unpack it. Um, so God saves sinners, 1 Corinthians 15, John three sixteen. I love, though, this is maybe my favorite. Um, I just love the four movements. That This is another way that you can share the gospel. I love the four movements. It gives, it's just a, a neat and a, a tidy, as it were, and a helpful um, way of breaking down the major movements of what I say is the gospel, because the whole scripture the whole arc of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is the gospel. It's the good news of how God made us and God, and we fell and God rescued us in Christ. And he's taking us to a good place. Um, and that those movements, you know, I, I like this in part because it is the whole scriptures in four words and in four movements. And it is the, because when I say God saves sinners, that's really focusing on the third word, redemption. Um, God paid a price for us, the price of his own son to rescue us and to make us whole. Um, but so it's giving the whole thing. It's also speaking to this generation in a way that they can understand this post or postmodern, postmodern or post postmodern people. Um, we, we, we want story. 
and that's where I'm going, going next, actually. Um, that's often the way Jesus, uh, I mean, God gave us a story in the scriptures. The scriptures are a story. They tell a story start to finish, Genesis to Revelation, from a garden to a city. Um, but Jesus came, God came in the flesh, and as a man, God shared the good news with us, and he did it by telling stories. And so there's something special about a story. It pulls somebody in and uh, can sneak truth in in sneaky ways. And, and C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien understood that, and that's why they told stories. Um, but so powerfully, sharing the gospel through Narnia and Lord of the Rings and, and the Space Trilogy, etc. But um, the four movements are... So, so the four movements really pull people into the story of God and share the gospel through that story, and I think it's really helpful, in part because... You know, you say God saves sinners. Well, why? Okay, sinners. I'm not a sinner. You know, and you have all these objections. But if you if you appeal to him by taking him to the story and saying, "Look, creation. He made us. He made every. There's a God, and He made everything. And we can look around and tell that man. I mean, there's so much evidence of intelligence. And you look at the DNA strand and and all the handiwork and et cetera and so forth. We, the fact that we're even able to talk intelligently about that now um, and analyze it, and the fact that I can look up at the stars and tell that, they're, that we live in a vast universe. I mean, are you kidding me? Like, an intelligence made us. He made us to ask these questions, to understand these things, but there's something so clearly wrong. There's this desire in it. We know that something's gone terribly wrong, both in us and in this world, and if we don't know that, we're fooling ourselves. Of course we know that. You know, G.K. Chesterton talked about how um, sin is one thing that is empirically provable. You look, you read the newspapers, and you just see how everything. It's all the headlines are, you know, bad news. Bad news sells, and uh, and we know for even a, a, if there's a modicum of honesty in us, we know that there's something terribly wrong with us. You know, the, the thing that that helps me to believe in the doctrine of total depravity. Not that I'm as bad as I could be, but that every every part of me is is broken by sin. Is me. I know my heart, and I, you know, if I broadcast over the airwaves or on a on a television um, for all to see and hear, the thoughts that go through my heart in a day, in my mind in a day, sometimes it would just it would be so embarrassing. But that's true of all of us, and so the heart is be- desperately wicked and beyond cure. The scriptures say, and yet we do have a cure in Christ, and so. Um, anyway, the four movements is maybe my favorite way of pulling people into the story. And because it, it talks about the broad sweep of scriptures, but it does it, it does it succinctly. Creation, fall, redemption, recreation. Okay, creation, God made us. Um, there's this sense of we've fallen. And then fall, in Genesis 3, we, we read of how things went wrong and that they went wrong and that we were made for a relationship with God and each other, but that we've been, because of sin, estranged from ourselves and Aldous Huxley writes Aldous Huxley um, excuse me why, why is this escaping me right now um, Percy Walker writes about this beautifully and, fun, and comically and lost in the cosmos but um, we can understand the universe and crab nebula but we, but we don't understand our own selves and somebody that, um, that has only been with us for five minutes we can walk into a room and they can tell certain things about us our shortcomings that we can't even see in ourselves and we live with ourselves so this, this is sin. Um, we are strange. Sin estranges from ourselves, from one another. We hide from each other, and we hide from God, our maker. The very one who made us, the life itself, the essence of life, without whom we die and apart from whom we die, we, we run from. I mean, that's a serious problem. So creation, fall, redemption, the rest from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament, all the way to the book of Matthew. 
We're waiting for our redemption. We're waiting for this Messiah. There are whisperings and then the prophets shoutings of him. And he finally comes on the scene and he lives the life that we should live, but can't and haven't and dies the death that we deserve on the cross. And then he defeats death and rises a new type of man, a second Adam. And he invites us to take hold of that life by faith for free, by trusting in him as Lord and Savior, not in ourselves, but believing on him. And we rely on his merit and not our own, and we are saved. Um, So that's redemption and then recreation. It's not just I'm saved, but it's that he's going to remake all things and that he's doing that now through, through us as he remakes us and as we share the gospel. So four movements, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. You can also put them like this, creation, decreation, recreation, new creation. So I love the four movements. That's another way to share the gospel. Another way that's old school is uh, the Roman road, the Romans road. And it's the, um, it's not the road that leads out of the city of Rome. It's the, it's the road, the pathway that we're given through the book of Romans that Paul wrote his magnum opus. So the human problem is what you have to start with. And this really starts with Romans 3.10, 3.23, and Romans 6.23. And it just enunciates the problem. You know, the good news isn't good unless there's bad news first. Jesus loves me. So what? Well, the fact is that um, God is an enemy of sinners. And so the, the most powerful being in the universe that's your only hope is also your ultimate terror because you're his enemy and you're at odds with him because you're saying, oh, crap, what must I do to be saved? Well, Jesus has made a way. Oh, good. You know, so the human problem, you have to enunciate the promise, the painful part, but without the painful part first, unless we take the time to do that, then the gospel isn't going to be very effective typically. And so um, that's not always the case. What did the Philippian jailer said? He said, what must I do to be saved? He saw the problem. Some people are ready, but most people, especially these days, don't even know there is a problem, right? So Romans 3.10, 3.23, and Romans 6.23 enunciate that, and I'm not going to read them all, but, you know, the wages of sin is death. There's no one righteous, not a single one. And then Romans 6.23 really breaks it down and down, downshifts and says, um, man, the, uh, well, yeah, so, so the way, yeah, the wages that we are sinners, all of us are sinners, and um, there's no one righteous. And then Romans 6.23, which I just quoted unknowingly, the wages of sin is death. That's the first part of it. Man. Okay, so what, what sin earns us, what it pays us is that we die. Not just, not just physically, but we die. Our first death, the first death is a, is a promise of the second death that's going to come. Now, not in Christ, but without Christ, we're not supposed to die. We are made to live forever. So when we die, it's a sign of the fact that we're sinners and that we're headed to eternal death, to an eternal unraveling, to perishing forever. But the second part of Romans 6.23 leads to the second of four movements in the Roman road, which is the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Doesn't the gift isn't gotten any old way. It's gotten for everyone in one way for anyone who wants it in one way through Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. It's utterly inclusive and it's utterly, uh, What's the word? It's utterly inclusive. It's for anyone, but it's exclusive in that it's only one way through Jesus. If there were any other way for us to be saved, he wouldn't have gone through. He wouldn't have come and he wouldn't have gone through the torture and the torment and the excruciating pain that he went through. So the human problem is the first step of the Roman road out of four. The second is that humanity's hope is in 
in Christ. We have a hope in Christ. And that's Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. It's kind of like um, John three sixteen, That while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us uh, when we were lovely people. He died for us when we were nailing him to the cross. He hung on the cross for our sin and as our sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became our sin. While we were still sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loves us. If you think God hates you, think again. He shows you the opposite in the person of Jesus Christ that he sent to die for you and that he was pleased to crush, Isaiah 53, so that you could be made whole. So that's the human problem and the humanity's hope in Christ. The third movement is the sinner's response. We have to respond, okay? We have to respond. Romans 10, 9, 9 through 10 um, says, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So he died for me. Not just he died. Satan believes that he died, but he died for me. I deserve what he took. And I believe that that's how much he loves me, that he died in my place and that he rose. He's not still dead. He has now power over death. And his death for me was proven to be satisfactory payment by God the Father. This is the end of Romans 4, Romans 4.25, that says that um, we are, um, that, that his resurrection shows that we've been justified, that, that the payment of Christ for you has been accepted. That's why he's alive. So because he's alive, it's, it, it's proof that you're free. And you are alive now because if you trusted in Christ, his spirit is in you making you alive and that you will have a, a new body one day and be with him forever and be recreated completely. Um, I haven't even finished. I'm preaching. I haven't even finished the verse. Um, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Um, and then Romans ten thirteen is part of this, the sinner's response to, um, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That just shows the broadness of the salvation that's offered. And then finally, um, the human problem, humanity's hope in Christ, the sinner's response, and then finally for the result of salvation. Romans 5, 1 through 2, and Romans 8, 1. Therefore, Romans 5, 1 through 2, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, that means we've been made right with God. You've been justified through faith. Through faith in whom? Your own works? No, the works of Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace in which we now stand. And the Romans 8, 1 as well. Um, so that's the Roman road. I just wanted to briefly mention that. Man, I, I think, as I mentioned earlier, stories, so effective. Uh, and again, the, four move, the fourfold movement of creation, fall, redemption, new creation is a story. Um, but you can tell stories that really pull people in too. And, uh, and Jesus came doing that. And so it's a wonderful model. It's maybe the best model. And, um, you know, you think about his parables. His parables are really stories, gospel stories that tell us about our problem and tell us about how God um, has made a way for us to be at the banqueting table again, to be made sons again to be brought get back, back into his family but often the parables are, are terrifying and they, they often tell of the problem you know of what is the prodigal son walking away walking away from home or the um in this case the vineyard one of the vineyard parables about how you know 
God is a, he owns a vineyard and he, he builds a, uh, a tower and a, and a, and a wine press on it and plants vines and, and sets it all up and then hires servants to run it and, and to be able to be fed and stay somewhere warm and, and they're on his land and on his property and running his vineyard that he set up. And so he sends, uh, he sends servants to collect the rent and the, the, the people that are running the vineyard that he's paying, um, they beat up the servants and they send them away without any rent. And then finally the vineyard owner thinks, well, I'll send my own son. I mean, surely they won't mistreat him and they, they don't just beat him up. They kill him. And you know, that's a picture of, uh, we might not realize it, but that's a picture of the entire sweep of the, of the scriptures of the old Testament all the way leading to Christ. And that's Jesus, of course, telling that story saying, yeah, I'm that son. And he doesn't say that there, but you know, the whole, the whole story essentially of the old Testament is of God making this wonderful world, this vineyard, this garden paradise for us to live in and putting us in it to work it. And whenever we give, give back to him, we're just giving a portion of what's already his. He's so good to us. And yet what we, what do we do? He, he sends us his prophets as we rebel he sends us his prophets. And uh, first of all, we refuse to, to send him rent. And then when he sends his prophets to collect, as it were, we, you know, the, the Israelites, his own people, uh, killed and abused the prophets and rejected their message. And then he sent his own son and we crucified him. So, so he's, he's telling us this, he's giving us this story, but it's really this so much truth that's embedded and packed into the whole Old Testament, all the way leading to Messiah that's packed into this whole story about a vineyard. Um, the prodigal son, I won't tell it here, but it's, it's well known. It's maybe the most powerful of all the parables. And set into that parable is the entire sweep of the scriptures. Um, same with the parable of the banquet. And, um, that he, and I could go on and on. I mean, some of his parables are only a verse or two long, right? Like the dragnet and the, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And so um, just be, and you can oftentimes use a parable of Christ and the truths that are embedded in that, that the details of which related to the culture he was in, right? He was, there were lots of, there were banquets, people were gathering around tables and still, of course, people do today, but, um, and there were fields and there was harvest and there were sheep and there were, uh, you know, people losing coins and, and um, he, he, was, he used the things around him to tell stories. You can, you can take these stories and strip them of their exact concrete details and replace them with details that are similar to, that would relate to people today and, and use those parables to convey the gospel. Um, and again, many of these parables talk about the dire situation we put ourselves in. And so the, the good news of, of being rescued and being brought back into the family of God pops against that black backdrop. So um, sort of a way of doing that is to give you one example, and this isn't mine, is a story called The Slap. And, you know, if I slapped you, and I'm assuming you're just a normal Joe, um, I'm assuming you're not the Queen of England, but if you are, apologies. Um, but I'm glad you're listening. But, you know, The Slap, if I slap you, then we're, we're, in, we're into some trouble here, but you know, let's say we're, we're, you're my peer, well, you'll slap me back or, or whatever, get mad and then I'll have to go say sorry. And eventually, hopefully we'll make up. But um, the point is, if I slap you, then I'm in trouble, but maybe not too much trouble. But then if I slap one of my parents, yikes. And then if I slap the principal, if I'm a school on, in grammar school and I slap the principal, that's it. I'm really in trouble. Well, wow. and then if I slap um, the Queen of England, 
there she is, or um, the prime minister or the president, I'm in hot water. I'm in even more trouble. Um, Now, we can't do this, but if I slap God, even as I tell the story, I get silent because the irreverence, thinking about slapping God and the irreverence involved in that is atrocious. And yet, the point is, in each of these incidences, we, we're doing the same thing. We're slapping someone. That doesn't change. What changes is the person we're slapping. And the punishment increases um, to the degree that, that the offense increases because the action isn't increasing, um, but, but the, the, the offense increases because I'm slapping different people. And the more important the person is and the more worthy of honor, the worse it is the worst the punishment is when I slap that person. And so, of course, we all intuitively understand if I slap my peer, yeah, I'm going to have a little trouble, not too much. If I slap the Queen of England, I could go away into the gale, into the prison forever. I could get locked up for good. My life could be taken from me. Probably not in England, but uh, so if I did that sort of thing in, in a Muslim country or with a sheikh or in... Uh, or with the Shah, or in oh, the Shah, the Ayatollah, or um, or in a far eastern country, I could I could really have my life taken from me. Well, with the, with God, we don't slap God, but yes, we do. That's the story of the scriptures, right? Our sin is a personal affront and an offense to God, and we have to help. We have to get that. And we have to help people understand that. It's not just something we do. You know, the whole there's a whole book the book of Hosea devoted to, you know, Abraham Heschel, um, the Jewish author, talks about how the prophets, you know, the histories before the prophets, they tell the story about our rebellion and the rebellion of God's people, Israel in particular. The prophets internalize that and show us, well, here's how that makes God feel. And Hosea does that preeminently. Hosea shows us that our sin is a personal affront to God and actually because he's made us for himself and brought us into love relationship through covenant. When we sin against him, we are, it's like a wife committing adultery against her husband. It's like he walks in and she's humping another guy. I'm sorry if I offend you, but I'm not sorry because that's the book of Hosea is even more graphic. And if our sin doesn't, if we don't understand that that's our sin doesn't offend us and it, and, and it doesn't sicken us and it doesn't, we don't see how much it offends God in that way at least, then we haven't, we're not doing ourselves any favors. Our sin offends God in ways we can never understand. And the best way that we can understand how much it offends God is to look at the cross. And it, my friend in Edinburgh, you know, he was a good guy. He went to Oxford and studied politics, philosophy, and economics and could have done anything he wanted and ended up being a preacher. And he played rugby and came from a pretty well-to-do family and um, you know, he didn't, he didn't think that he would go out drinking with his buddies and he didn't think that his sin was a problem because it wasn't a problem to him and it wasn't a problem to people around him, but it was a problem to God. And he didn't realize that until he read the book of Hosea. And literally that book helped convert him because he saw how offensive his sin was to God and how much it grieved God and how it makes God feel and how he can't countenance it. And that's a problem. But the solution is Jesus. And so that, that simple story of the slap that takes just a couple minutes to tell 
can really help somebody begin to wrestle with that fact and hopefully lead them to Christ, who is the, the solution to the, to the problem. Um, we can share the gospel relationally. You know, I think Matt Chandler is the one who said, I, I, want, it, I want to... There's a sense in which sharing the gospel is simply saying, we can make it so awkward, right? But we should, we're doing ourselves a disservice when we, when we do that. Um, Chandler says, look, I, think about it this way. I, I want to introduce you to the kindest, funniest, and most beautiful person I know. The best person I know. I mean, if, if, if this were anyone, you, I love connecting people, good people with good people. Like, oh, I can't wait to introduce you to this person. It's such a privilege. So it's so fun to see two people that I love get together. And yeah, I did that. You know, I have two friends in Austin that are, were two of my best and still are in a sense, but two of my best friends. And I got to introduce them and I think they met at my wedding. And now they, they both live in Austin. And I'm here in Houston and, and it's just so fun. I'm kind of jealous, but I'm so fun. To, it's so fun to think about how they, they're great friends now. Man, when we, we get to introduce people to the best person in the universe, the most generous, kindest, funniest, richest, most powerful, best, most beautiful, life itself, most giving. I mean, what a privilege. Think about it that way. Think about it relationally. Um, and on that note too, you know, and I might touch on this in a bit, but we sharing the gospel in relationship is wonderful so good. And that's been an advance, I think, from the sort of um, evangelism explosion, Roman Road, just give people the four propositional truths and um, and then say, do you want to receive Christ? You know, and, 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 and two, on that note, I, I just, this just came to me. I, I, it's not in my notes, but sort of you can share the gospel through questions. Um, and this is a bit along those, those lines of the sort of modernist evangelism explosion, Romans Road route, not ineffective necessarily, less effective in our culture, but just having it in your tool bag, the whole, um, you know, if I, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and he should say, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And if they say, well, I've been a pretty good person. If they answer it in that way at all, you immediately know, even if they claim to be a Christian, they don't understand the gospel because the gospel is I'm not a good person. The cross shows me how much God loves me. Yes. But it first shows me how, what I deserved, how wicked I am and what it took to save me. I'm not a good person at all, and that's why Jesus had to die, chose to die. But because he did, and because I believe he died for me, I've been saved. And uh, I say, my answer is that, why should I let you into my heaven? Because Jesus Christ, the righteous, is my righteousness and paid the complete price for my sin, and I'm clean. And that's true, and that's the gospel. And that's what we must believe to be saved. And that's what we have to let people know. So that's, that's a sidebar. Um, but I think it's an advance in a way that we, we say, hey, man, we want to get people aren't targets. They're people. We want to get to know them in relationship and earn the right to be heard. But that's, there's a falseness there that can keep us from articulating the gospel sometimes, which is one of the reasons I wanted to do this, this little lecture here, because we've kind of forgotten how to articulate the gospel. And sometimes we think we don't need to, but we do need to. Um, and we don't need to earn the right to share the gospel. Paul didn't do that. Um, Jesus earned the right to share the gospel. And if someone's on their deathbed, I'm not going to sit there and try to get to know them first before earning the right to... No, it's, there's an urgency there. And the most loving thing I can do with someone is to share the best thing that there is and introduce them to the best person there is. The, the stakes are eternal or for keeps and it's serious. And so 
Um, I think there's a bit of writing that the pendulum has swung too far. Um, I have to get, take years to get to know someone before I can share the gospel. False. False. Um, now, I should remember, um, it's often in relationship that this works best, and I should never see somebody as a target, but as an eternal soul for whom Christ died. Um, but I can know them for two seconds and share the gospel with them if I need to, and, and um, I should be ready to do that. And sometimes I need to wait longer. But, um, you know, so anyway. So, relationally, um, like Matt Chandler said, and then in relationship, good. Um, study the gospel, study the Bible with the person. This is a good way to, to share the gospel. Um, you know, one of the uh, walking through John, taking five weeks to walk through the gospel of John five chat first, first time you just ask a bunch of questions, get to know them. And then second session, they agree to just meet with you for the next four weeks. And, and you walk through five chapters a week with them and, and it just, you introduce them to Jesus and, and let, um, him do the work. And, uh, ask him questions about what he, what John is saying about who Jesus is. And he's introducing us to, to the real Christ that he knew and is with now. And uh, you just kind of let the lion out of the cage and watch Christ go to work on him. And I've seen people saved, quite a few, um, in this way. And it gives you time with them, too. It's kind of a mixture. Like you're, you're sharing the gospel with them, but it's over a few weeks, and you're committing to some time, and you're getting to know them, and you're sitting down with them. And, and so... That can be really good. Um, and, and, and I'll mention a particular resource that will help you do that at the end here. Um, so another thing that I wanted to say in, um, in this lecture here on how to share the gospel is that the gospel is everywhere. Um, it's in a seed that, that dies in the ground without, without dying. There's no plant that comes. There's no life that comes. There's no oak tree that emerges from the acorn unless the acorn dies in the ground. This is a beautiful picture, as Jesus pointed out, of, of the gospel, of what Jesus has done for us and of the life that he calls us to, to let go of our lives, to give them to him, to trust him, to trust his love for us, to trust that he's made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father, to die to our own dreams and ambitions and to give our lives to him. And, and in that death, we find life. Um, there's, there's the gospel in the seasons the seasons of, um, and we don't see them as much down here in Houston, but of the death of winter, which yields to the, the life of spring and the, the abundance, um, the florid abundance of, of summer and the teeming life therein, and then um, of the, the slow and beautiful dying of fall and then all over again. So, so there's that. Um, and of course, the harvest and the, and the sowing that, that comes with, with those seasons too. But why is the gospel everywhere? You know, and we could we could spend hours on this very the idea that that creation shows us, as as Paul sort of points out in Romans one, it shows us pictures of not only of God but of the gospel, and um, why why is this the case? Why does creation show us the truth of of who God is and what He's done to save us? Be, because God made it, and He sowed the story of creation and his magnificence and of salvation into even this broken creation he can't help it can't help but reflect god and and his story to some degree um because the god who came to save us knew that he would that he would come to save us when he made all things and so he sowed that picture like i said he showed he sowed those pictures of his future salvation and and of his people uh, uh, excuse me of of his future salvation of a people into his creation. Um, so just keep your eyes open. 
and be looking for, like Jesus did when he was walking and talking and, and sharing the gospel through parables and in stories and in other ways. Um, be, keep your eyes and ears open and look, and look for ways to do that as you interact with people. And, and what did Jesus say? He said, you know, I, um, be in conversation with the Father. Be listening. He said, I only say what the Father's saying. I only, I only do what the Father's doing. So as you're in tune, as you're abiding in Christ and in tune with, with him and filled with his Holy Spirit, um, he'll show you. He'll, he'll open your eyes to things. Um, this is not just how, you know, how do I share the gospel, but sort of when do I share the gospel? Um, Oz Guinness, a mentor for a little, for a little season in my life. Um, he's an author. He talked about and talks about signals of transcendence and just how, you know, some, for most of people's lives, unless we come to Christ early in our, in our rebellion and in our old man, we are, we are, we are hard to God and we're hard to the gospel. Um, we're not open, but sometimes the rock can become porous. Sometimes the, the dry, the dry sponge can, can, uh, can soften with it when a bit of water is poured on it. Um, and, and sometimes there are these signals of transcendence, these moments where the transcendent and awareness of the, of the reality of God and the bigger questions start to beckon at the doorstep of our conscience and our, in our minds and our hearts. And oftentimes this happens, this can happen in a moment of pain, a moment of loss, privation, a desert season, um, a surprise. You know, he tells a story about how um, there's, a, there's an old Marxist atheist couple. And by the way, Marxism is built on, intrinsic to Marxism is atheism. I hope you know that. Um, but anyway, if you didn't, you do now, and you can go read up on, on the history of the Russian Revolution. Um, Orlando Figes, by the way, F-I-G-E-S, is uh, apparently a good book. I've got it on my... A friend gave it to me, and I haven't read it yet. It's like a thousand pages. But anyway, um, that's a total sidebar. But um, it, he tells a story about this this professorial, I think they were academic, um, Marxist, 1960s hippie, atheist couple that had a had a kid late in life, and they it was a surprise, and they started seeing kind of life through the kid's eyes and asking questions that they had not asked before, like, well, do we want to pass on our atheistic worldview to this child and and that actually that was a signal of transcendence moment and it opened them up to to hear the gospel to be open to it and to receive christ and be saved and you know you see that signal of transcendence with the guy i mentioned before the philippian jailer in acts 16 where he's probably hard to the gospel and he's gladly watching over paul and silas as they're locked locked up uh, against a, a rock wall <clears throat> in philippi and they're singing Praises to God, chained to a wall after being after getting the hell beaten out of him, and you know there's probably a process that goes on there where he's softened to, man, there's, there must be something. Where does this joy come from? There must be something about these guys. And then there's an earthquake, and everything, all the chains fall off these guys, and the doors swing open. And the most curious thing about that is that Paul, when that happened before, Paul walked out, but this time he doesn't. Why? I don't know. But it was for the sake of this Philippian jailer, that's for sure, in God's providence, because when, when uh, the Philippian jailer sees that after he sort of comes to after the earthquake, he's maybe knocked out or something, and he sees that, that um, all this has happened and that the jail and that the, the, the doors have swung open and, the, and the, all the chains have been unbound, that he pulls out his sword to kill himself, to commit Harry carry, as it were, because the Roman penalty would have been his life for letting the prisoners go. 
And Paul shouts at him, whoa, 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 bring up the lights. We're still here. And so he's, he's heard the songs. He's seen Paul and Silas over the course of that night singing praises to God. And now he sees this and he goes, okay, what must I do to be saved? He's ready. So signal of transcendence. And you know, how does, and Os Guinness goes on to say, how do we know that someone's in a signal of transcendence moment? We, well, we know because we're in relationship oftentimes. We're close enough to them. We've paid enough attention. We've listened to them enough. We've walked alongside of them closely enough that we know we're somebody that they're asking questions to. We're listening. Um, we're in their lives. And so we're ready. We're ready with the, with the gospel when they, when they ask. And we're ready to give it to them in the way that they can receive it, okay? Like Paul does in Acts 17 with the Athenians. He gives them a gospel in a way that he doesn't in anyone else. And that's an interesting study. Different ways that Paul gives the gospel to different people. So serve it up in a way that people can understand. Don't make it harder than it needs to be for somebody. Again, back to the Philippian jailer. Paul gives it straight to him. Believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. Um, yeah, I had, a, I had a phrase in my head, but I lost it. So, so that's that. Um, signal of transcendence. Be, be, a, be attuned to that. Be aware of that. You know, we can also share the gospel by serving and loving people. That'll soften folks a lot of times, and that takes time. Over time, maybe it's once, maybe it's, maybe it's over years. Um, of course, pray for folks, um, but this isn't so much. This is how to share the gospel, right? So hospitality can be a way to share the gospel, by a way of serving and loving folks. Um, opening up your home. It's interesting that in the list of um, requisite qualifications for elders, pastors in the, church, in the ancient church, Paul always includes hospitality. It seems quaint and small and not as important, not that important, but the more I pastor um, and the more we talk about reaching our neighbors for Christ, the more I see how important hospitality is. And I see that you, know, you cannot be a leader in God's church and not, not open your home and not have a swing door and not be inviting to people that you live around. Because um, what, is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's God being hospitable. It's God opening up his home to us and bringing us in at infinite cost to himself. So opening up your table, preparing meals for people, taking time and energy and resources to do that, boy, that's... And then it creates time around a meal and around drink where you can relate to people and get to know them and love them and share truths and tell stories and share the gospel and be there. For, I mean, it's so many good things happen around the table. And Jesus was constantly ministering um, around the table and sharing meals with folks. And, and still today, when we celebrate Christ weekly, we celebrate with around the table by uh, breaking bread and eating his, his, uh, his body and drinking his blood and, with the wine. And, um, and that is just a reminder of these things and, and so many more. But he's the God of the table. Where is he taking us to? You know, he's going to kick off the party, the consummate party, um, and the new heavens and the new earth with a, with a feast at the table, the wedding feast of the lamb. We're going to be at table with him. And bringing someone to table is a way of saying to them, uh, you're my friend. I want to bring you in no matter what you've done to me, right? And so even if I don't know you. And so I, Robin and I are renovating part of our house and our kitchen has been stripped for the past few months and it's the cabinets are being put in as I speak and we're maybe weeks away from having a not a fully functioning Death Star, but um, you know a, a kitchen that works and that we can re, we can start putting stuff on the shelves and and having people over again and 
and man, it's just been, it's been desert. It's been so hard not being able to be hospitable. And, uh, it's really felt like I've had one arm tied behind my back and, and yet it's been a, ch- a chance for people to be hospitable with us and our, our church, uh, many of whom live close, uh, some of whom live on the same street and block uh, have just been so good to us. That's a side point. Okay. Um, a few more and then we're done. Um, we can share the gospel. Not only, this is a biggie. This is a big one that I think is overlooked in the reformed wing of the church, which in which I sit gladly, but uh, not only in words, but in, in deeds, right? And, and, and when you start to think about this, so, or in power, I, I could say. Um, so John Wimber, I'm going to quote a couple guys that, um, you know, the reform camps are maybe a little bit scared about, but I'm, I'm not. Uh, John Wimber, uh, Power Evangelism, really, when I say this, I'm not endorsing everything the guy ever said, or even that he says in this book, but man, come on, you got to sift. You got to be able to plunder the gold from the Egyptians. That's an Augustinian phrase. Um, eat the meat, spit out the bones. But <clears throat> um, John Wimber, Power Evangelism, really helpful book, right? And what is his point? And Brian Blount more recently writes a book called Putting Jesus on Display with Love and Power. Um, boy, it's, it's such a good book. And he, um, you know, they, they make the point that Jesus, wherever he goes, he goes sharing the gospel, which is the good news of the King's coming, not to judge us, but to save us. And he shared the God, he, whenever he went, he went sharing the gospel in word and in deed. He went preaching the gospel and healing. And oftentimes in our, in our fundamentalist and reformed camps, we we forget about the healing part. It's like, okay, that we still share the gospel in word, but we leave off the, the healing part. Well, you know what? And that's unfortunate because of the unfortunate doctrine of cessationism uh, uh, to which I do not describe, ascribe, excuse me. Um, it's just not scriptural and, and it's not right. Um, God is still, the, the most powerful thing he can do is save someone. Yes, absolutely. That's the greatest work of healing. Um, you know, when the paralytic was lowered through the roof, and he says, your sins are forgiven. He's showing us, and then he heals him, right? He's showing us that, and he tells us a second later, it's so, so much more of a big deal for me to forgive sins. You don't even understand. I'm going to have to, go, have to go to the cross to do it than it is for me to raise this guy up off his mat. But so that you know that I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to say, get up. And he, and he does get up. But because Christ can heal us of the malady of sin, and of estrangement from God. He can also heal physical maladies. And so just taking more risks and praying over people, and we're going to be training you guys in Sojourn Galleria to, to um, know how to take that risk, be able to do that, pray for folks. Um, and and he, he doesn't always heal, but he can. And, he, and there are, you know, Craig uh, Keener. Keener? Is that, I'm just having a, a brain toot here. Um, Two-volume two-volume uh, work on miracles called Miracles that, where he documents around the world across the, past, the span of the past 2,000 years thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of mirac- documented miracles. And he gives footnotes after footnotes after footnotes. It's amazing work. I've just, just begun to crack into it. Um, but Craig Keener, thoroughly evangelical, amazing scholar, four-volume, 4,000-page commentary on the Book of Acts, and so many more books besides, but he, he writes, he compiles this thing. And, you know, God is still in the business of, of healing, um, 
of restoring our souls and also our bodies. And this often can lead people to be open to the gospel. You know who did this? Jesus. This is an expression of how much he loves you. But you know what? He wants to, he wants to, he came to save you. He wants to reconcile you to the father. That's how much he loves you. And so, um, it's, it can just be, it can, it can be, it can help produce a signal of transcendence and openness in someone that, it, that was formerly, that was formerly closed to the gospel and closed to Jesus. And, uh, and that's often what you see in the gospels is that people that are healed, um, are so open to following Jesus and to receiving who he is and what he has for them. And that hasn't changed. And, you know, Brian Blount, gives instance after instance of this as does as does um um sorry i'm i'm hungry and i'm tired um this is the third lecture i've recorded today uh as does john wimber okay so man i wanted to say a little more on this last thing but this has to be under an hour we have a few minutes left um apologetics and faith defense you know it's down here toward the end because it's not as especially in our culture today, you know, you hear you don't argue somebody into the kingdom. You can. Um, you love somebody in the kingdom. Apologetics are necessary. Um, they are something that we need to be familiar with, and, and we're going to have classes on that, God willing, in the future. Um, but they, they're not typically as effective in sharing, in sharing the gospel and seeing someone brought to Christ. At least we don't want to lead with that typically. But we, we need to know how to defend the faith. Apology comes from the Greek um, apologia, which means defense. So it's a faith defense. It's not, uh, you're not apologizing like the way that we use it for the faith. You're defending the faith. And we need to be able to, in part, defend the faith to shut the mouths of unbelievers and also to be a bridge for them to be able to, to lead them, to sort of demolish the things that stand between them and being able to believe on Christ. Um, and I'll just say this, there are two and then I'll move on to the last thing. There are two sort of ways, at least, to apologize to def- for the faith, to defend the Christian faith. One of them is classical, and that's really, and the other is presuppositional. Let me explain. Classical is the sort of way that you're probably thinking of, and the, which is <clears throat> all this information, like uh, more than a carpenter, Josh McDowell. That's a sort of layman's amazing, right? Amazing version of of giving all these evidences, these reasons to believe. And there's so, so, so many from scripture, from creation and other ways um, that there's so many good reasons that we should believe. It takes a lot more faith to believe that there is no God, way more faith. One of my favorite books on this note is um, written by a lawyer, actually, who's a savant and who gets into astrophysics and physics and mathematics. And I'm actually super attracted to that sort of method, but um, not classical, but the, his method of just showing how it's mathematically actually impossible that energy in blind chance created what we see today, including ourselves, because um, information, which DNA is, cannot come from energy. Um, and he proves that incontrovertibly through math and physics, but um, it's called, it's by a guy, oh gosh, my memory, it's by, it's called um, A Case Against Self-Organization, and something, 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 and it's by Day, uh, o- over Dean Overman, Dean Overman, um, a case, yeah, a case against self-organization and something, something. That's a wonderful book, but that's classical apologetics. Presuppositional apologetics is something that most people are less familiar with in the West, at least. But it's um, Francis Schaeffer was a espoused it was a a proponent of of presuppositional 
apologetics and maybe more famously uh, and more fundamentally <clears throat> Cornelius Van Til and then you have Greg Bonson and John Frame and others. So and one of my professors, John, uh, James Anderson at RTS uh, Charlotte is, uh, man, there's just so much good stuff out there on it. But in, in a word, presuppositional apologetics doesn't start with, it can involve the classical approach of, hey, here's, here are evidences for the truth of Scripture and the truth of the gospel and the truth that God exists. But uh, and, and mere Christianity is an, ex, an excellent example of that. It's a wonderful um, use of, of, of reasons to believe in not only a God, but, but a, a personal, a multi-personal, intelligent God. Um, but also, uh, yeah, presuppositional apologetics where it's called, you know, Francis Schaeffer, I think, used the phrase taking the roof off. You help people see we've all got assumptions that we rely on, that we, that we, that are like lenses that we wear through which we see the world. And we don't, ex- there are assumptions that we assume them, we don't explain them. And a lot of, because of that, a lot of us don't even realize we have these assumptions. But we have these assumptions and they, they filter the way that we see the world. But only the Christian God, as revealed through the Old and New Testaments, the Judeo Christian scriptures, can actually adequately. Um, account for the assumptions that we have to have to live by. So I won't say any more but on that but except to say that when it can help because it puts people it puts you on a level playing field. So one of the things that um Cornelius Van Til said is that <clears throat> he said that the the atheist stands on the floorboards of theism to make his case against God. So he stands he he has all these assumptions that only that can only be explained. Um, these assumptions are only adequate, right? They only exist because God exists, a multipersonal intelligence. Um, and yet these things are assumed that are provided for by the existence of a multipersonal God to then argue against his existence. So... You know, I'm using the brain and the breath that God gives me to argue against God's existence. So another way he says it is it's like an atheist is like a child sitting on the lap of his parent and slapping that parent in the face. It's like you are up high enough um, because you're in the lap of your father to then slap your father in the face. And so um, you take the, Francis Schaeffer says, you take the roof off with this presuppositional approach. You help them see you have assumptions too, but your worldview can't support um, your assumptions, and mine can. And so, let's. Uh, and so, you 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 level the playing field. You take the roof off, and then. And so, I've 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 mentioned a few names. James Anderson. He has a great website. Um, Cornelius Van Til. A little little more difficult to understand, but but fundamental. And uh, John Frame. Um, easier apologetics to the glory of God, and then Francis Schaeffer. So so apologetics are helpful, and we'll have more on that. Um, and then. Resources. Um, just lastly, and I'm probably going to go. I might. Not, I might be able to make it under a minute. Fifty seconds. Boom. Under an hour. Um, John. John in five weeks. That's Journey to Life. Um, I'm, just search that in Google. But Journey to Life. Jeremiah Morris. That's a. It, the videos are there. The notes are there. Everything you need is there to lead somebody in five weeks through the Gospel of John. Just ask them. Hey, would you be willing to you know, take five weeks to meet with me and walk through the Gospel of John? Boom. Alpha courses, super helpful. We want to run those more in our church. And Christian community, finally, 
and this may send me over, but that's okay. I'll be an hour and one minute. Um, Christian community is a super, super underappreciated um, way to share the gospel. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that if you read the first picture, the picture of the first church in Acts chapter two at the end, um, it says that the church was being the church and sharing life together and breaking bread together and devoting themselves to the teaching and being generous and miracles are being done and all was coming upon them and they were breaking bread and joyous and sharing life. And what does it say at the end of that? It says in verse 41 and in verse 47, uh, like, like pieces of bread on a sandwich, sandwiching at the beginning of this description of the early church and at the very end of it, sandwiching and bookending this description of the life of the church was what? And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who are being saved. And so God is doing the work of salvation, and that is happening as the church is unified and loving one another and um, being the church. And as they're doing that, they're naturally, they're being a witness to the wider world, and the wider world is kind of peering in, as it were, and they, they get too close to this community, and they get sucked in and saved. And the way that we love each other and the Christian community and inviting people into that is a huge way that people get saved. There's power there. Now, I will say this, and I'll end here. We are focusing as a church on saying, look, we've for t- far too long in the American church had our method of evangelism and outreach be, hey, come to church, come to church, come to Jesus, that is powerful, but even come to church is not come to an event on a Sunday. It's come be part of this fellowship, this community that is the church whether in my home or we're going to the store or we're going to go worship or we're going to the park or whatever, um, or come serve with us or come be with us or come sit around a campfire and drink a beer and smoke and, and let's, let's hang out and talk. That's the church. That can be the church, right? Um, but for far too long, that's been our method is come, come, come. Let's let other people do the work for us. That's why I want to say, here are some ways that we can share the gospel. But what did God say? God said, he didn't say, hey, um, I have all authority, therefore uh, tell them to come. He said, therefore go make disciples. So here are some ways that we can begin to do that by sharing our faith and then by seeing people come to Christ and then by beginning to disciple them in Christ. God bless you guys.